Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast where we chronicle all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Terry McLean of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Now, you have one of the uh, storybook kind of discovery stories, the kind you read about, the kind you see in films. Um, can you maybe talk about um, how you got discovered? Because you actually legit got discovered by a record person while you were playing on a ferry. Yes, that's right. Um, when I was 20-ish, um, I was traveling on a BC ferry out in British Columbia, and uh, I was going from Victoria to a little island called Salt Spring, and I had my guitar with me. And I decided to go up to the top deck because it was such a beautiful day. And I was with some friends and one of my other friends also had their guitar and we just started jamming up on the top deck. And by the time we got to the other side, it was only about a 35 minute ferry ride. Um, these two women came up to me and a few people had been standing around listening, but these two women came up to me and they said, Hey, that was, that was really good. Do, do you write your own songs? And one of the songs that you played, we didn't recognize. I said, yeah, that was one of mine. And one of them fished a card out of their pocket and it was, uh, it had the network logo on it, which was um, a, a record company, obviously Vancouver based. And, um, you know, this would have been 1993, 94. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, they just said, uh, we would love to, to talk to you and I said wait that's Sarah McLaughlin's record label and they laughed and said, there <laughs> is and so that's how I met them and one woman's name was Kathy Barrett and the other one was uh, Tony Mariama and as a result of that meeting I got a, a record deal from Network and I got a publishing deal from Sony uh, ATV Music Publishing so it was a really fortuitous moment and the funny thing is is that I I had was trying to catch the ferry before, and I missed it. Huh. So you just never know. You, you know, I didn't stress, and I'm glad I didn't. Which uh, what songs were you playing? Do you remember your uh, set that day? I the only song I remember playing um, was a song called "Let Her Feel the Rain," which was a song from my first album. Nice. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. uh, how many gigs had you played up to that point? Were you trying to make it as a singer songwriter, or were you just uh, doing that stuff for fun, or? Well, there was no way that I was going to be uh, a, a songwriter, singer professionally, because my father had done that. And I thought, well, that's not a very stable way to move through the world. So <laughs> um, I, I was going to be a lawyer, and I was involved very heavily in the environmental movement in British Columbia at the time. There was a, a huge event happening in um, a place called Clackwood Sound, where they were logging ancient uh, forests, rainforests, and a lot of us went up there to try and fight it. And I had just finished actually <laughs> being in jail. I, I got arrested <laughs> up there, and oh. then and then I went through the court system and defended myself in court, and it was an incredible experience. And huh. then ended up in jail, as many of us did. And then it was this happened right after I got out of jail. So um, I was all I wanted to do was be an environmental lawyer, and music was you know, something that I, I did because I had to, like music helped me survive. It, it gave me, uh, you know, a way of, you know, just getting the pain out of my body or confusion or whatever I was going through. I would write poetry and, 
or songs and just really helped me get through. So I saw it more as a life raft. I didn't see it as a way of making a living. And how much did um, that passion for the environment uh, work it, work itself into your songs and your poetry? Well, I grew up off-grid on Prince Edward Island uh, in the 70s, and so nature was always a big part of how I was raised. And so nature in, in my poetry and song is very, very present in my love and passion for the natural world. Yeah, always very present. And when we eventually did go on grid and we had a television, uh, my favorite show was The Nature of Things by David Suzuki. Oh, and nice. I can't tell you how thrilled I was as an adult to actually work with him, um, not only on tour with him because he would do these presentations and we would sing before he would do the presentations, but also as uh, working with the David Suzuki Foundation fundraising. So, and I did a song for one of his albums. So yeah, he's, I'm super passionate about it. And, and he, you know, he was sort of my hero at the time. And yeah. Now, um, how long after that first meeting with, uh, after you got that first business card were you in talks to make a record to, I mean, what was the first kind of talks like? Are they asking you how many songs do you have? Are they trying to put you in touch with fellow songwriters? What was kind of the process like once you took that first uh, business card from them? That, that's a great question. They put me in touch with Terry McBride, who is the head of Network. And uh, and he and I had a chat and I liked him right away. He was very, very passionate about music and told me that he loved what I had done and asked if I had more songs. And I said, well, I do, but they're all inside me. <laughs> um, and he said, well, just sit down, press record on your tape deck at the time I had a tape deck and I just sang as many songs as I could that I had written into the tape deck and then um and then Sony gave me a a development money so five thousand dollars to record five songs and uh which even now today that's a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) recording songs um but yeah it was it was just great and so I went in with this producer in his home studio and recorded and recorded, and they just kept getting me to write. Now, Network wasn't a huge proponent of co-writing. Sarah had had some unfortunate experiences in that realm, and so Terry definitely encouraged me to be more of a solo writer. And uh, However, Sony, um, my publishing company, were sort of the opposite. They liked the idea of collaboration, and so I did have the chance on that first album to collaborate with uh, John Levine from The Philosopher Kings, who's an incredible writer. <laughs> and But most of the songs I wrote on my own for that first album. And it was, yeah, it was an incredible process. I, I think I demoed after the, those first um, five demos. I just, I kept working on songs until uh, until, yeah, I had maybe 13 or 14. And then they sent me down to, then I, I actually signed my uh, deal in 1995, like my, my solid deal, and ended up getting sent down to San Francisco. And there I holed up in this old warehouse with this crazy producer for a month, and we, we created Silence, my first album. Now, I'm interested because I think you're the first um, solo artist I've had on the podcast, and I kind of get the idea of how a band works, you know. Mm-hmm. A solo artist, especially someone uh, you said yourself, you were pretty inexperienced at that time. I'm curious, how are you picking musicians? How are you deciding, okay, I want drums on the song, bass on the song? 
you know, because up to that point, mm. I mean, you, you, it had been you and a guitar. So I'm curious of how the evolution of the songs came and how you got those players to be on the record. Well, at the time, the idea was listen to the producer. Mm. You know, I was kind of coming in and and singing and, you know, I had been the songwriter, but it was it was more of, you know, just the producer will know what to do. But I had a very strong idea of what I liked and didn't like. And that was a little bit difficult at first. Um, we butted heads a lot because there were times when I, I just didn't, I didn't like the way, the way things were going. And I would say, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. And it took a little while, but pretty soon the, I began to trust the producer and the producer began to trust me. And we developed a relationship that, <laughs> that was really symbiotic and, and he was really, really good. His name was Norm Kerner. And he had a real angry streak. He had just broken up with his girlfriend and he walked around with a bat over his shoulder. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and yeah, and he was a bit bitter. Um, but he was very talented. And he would bring in these musicians that were so unbelievably incredible. Um, uh, they just, I mean, they would just, they blew my mind. And, and I watched as my songs just, just took all these new dimensions on. And, you know, people would come in for a hundred bucks and play on a song and they'd be real ringers in the, you know, San Francisco music scene. Uh, I requested a piano player named Veda Hilly, who was my piano teacher, but she was also a bit of, um, she was a bit, how how do I explain Veda? She was like a bit of, she had a big cult following, um, very, very cool writer, incredible poet phenomenal musician and she was from Vancouver and I asked if I could have her in in San Francisco with me and so piano ended up being a really big part of that record as well so it was a fantastic process and all the musicians were so kind the the most exciting part for me was the drum loop because I'd never heard anything like that I mean that was really just starting right Mm -hmm. in the 90s And in that in that way, and like taking folk music and putting drum loops to it, it was just so cool. And I was a huge fan of Peter Gabriel. Like I loved rhythm and interesting rhythm, and you know Tom Waits. And I didn't I didn't love Kit with, with you know symbols and like your typical sounds. I wanted something cooler and deeper and darker and grittier. Like I had, even though my voice was pretty and my songs were pretty, I really wanted the production to be gritty and uh and almost industrial and so i tried we tried to kind of marry the two and get a really cool balance of that and i think we succeeded in some in some places and our drum programmer was super amazing and cool and had all these crazy stories about working with hip-hop artists and and yeah it was a really neat thing i felt like i was on the precipice of of something um musically which was which was really neat what song do you think was elevated the most by these guest musicians and this new instrumentation on them? Well, I would probably say my first single, which was a song called Evidence.
I heard on the radio because it was my first single and it won the Canadian Radio Music Award, which was the most played Canadian song on radio the year it was released. And I made a video for it. Um, and it was a really cool experience because I'd never made a video and network, network is so great. They, they were all about my vision. Uh, and, re, you know, Sarah is obviously an incredible artist and Sarah McLaughlin and, and trained musician and visual artist. Whereas I am none of those things. I don't read music. I can't draw. I can barely put my eyeliner on straight. Like <laughs> I don't have, I don't have a lot of those talents. So for them to say, Hey, what, what story do you want to tell in your music video? What's the song about? And we just ran with it. And it was a really, um, it was a really cool idea of the psychology of going into your past and dealing with trauma. And they allowed me to, yeah, co-create that with the director and it was really great great experience and i and i loved the video it got played on much music <laughs> was it exciting yes oh my gosh it 
was so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was so exciting. And I go to all these parties, all of a sudden I was, you know, at the Much Music Christmas party chatting with the VJs and doing interviews. I did so many interviews that I was going through a box the other day of my press kit. And my press kit is like, it is, yeah, it's like the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. It's so <laughs> thick. And, and I just remembered all, and I saw some of my um, schedules where I would do like interview after interview after interview. It was a very, very exciting time. And Terry's whole MO, so Terry also then acted as my manager. And I think the only people who were on his management uh, roster at the time were myself, Sarah McLaughlin, The Grapes of Wrath, and Barony the Ladies. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so we, uh, yeah, so he just put me on the road. He said, you're going to the States. That's where you need to be. And he, I started in Seattle, and I was just, I just opened for every band in the universe. <laughs> and that was my, how he put me in school, basically. Like, you, you need to learn how to play in any situation. Um, and at first I was, oh, no, actually, I should say he first put me on tour across Canada on one tour with Tom Cochran. Uh, just one tour across Canada. And that's where I met Tom Cochran's guitar player, who I married. And his name was Bill Bell. And then then they threw us down into the States. And it was just the two of us touring for years. Oh, wow. And it was incredible. Yeah, incredible experience. We'd open, we opened for the Bare Naked Ladies a lot. You can imagine, like, little folky me <laughs> opening for BNL for a full college crowd, you know, throwing their red cups of beer. Yeah. <laughs> So what were some of the things you learned from uh, touring with some of those people you mentioned? Oh, such a great question. It was such an exciting time because a lot of the bands I was opening for were either really established, like The Cure. Oh, back up. Let's talk about The Cure, man. That's, I don't hear oh, that every sure. day. How, did, uh, how many dates did you play with The Cure and how did that exactly manifest? Um, just a few, but it was manifested by my friend um, Oedipus, who was a uh, a legendary DJ in Boston. So I was the, one of the first ways that they, they started me off in the U S um, was not only opening for people, but doing residencies. So I would play a cafe and in Boston, it was the Kendall cafe and I would play three nights in a row. And huh. the idea was, was that on day one, you know, people would just take a chance and I go to radio and I go and do all the press. And then hopefully on day two, more people would show up. And by day three, people would be lined up down the block. And that was like, the hope for these residencies and one day I went in I did an interview with Oedipus I didn't realize that he was one of the most powerful people in radio in the in America he huh. was the first person to play Roxanne in the states yeah by the police he's the first place person to play the Ramones on the radio like he was huh. just and our people would tremble in his presence he was just wonderful and he he interviewed me and then he came to my show that night at the little cafe and he helped me load in my, my guitar. And oh, he wow. just said, Hey, like, this is, you're really special. I would like you to play my Christmas show opening for the cure. Huh. And so he had me, he booked me on a ton of stuff. Even I opened for garbage. I opened for hole for Courtney love. Huh. Um, yeah. I just ended up in all of these incredible situations. So I was there with a lot of established musicians um, and, what I learned from them, uh, like Courtney Love kicked me out of my dressing room. So 
Uh, I think consider that a badge of honor. Um, she wanted the backstage cleared, but uh, <laughs> is there is there more to the story than that, or it sounds like a good one? And no, there's no more than that. No, <laughs> um, but uh, Robert Smith, on the other hand, watched my entire set, and everyone mm. was telling me, "Please don't open for the Cure. Like, just say no to that gig. It, their audience will eat you alive. You're just like a sweet little folk singer." And <laughs> and I was like, "Are you kidding me? I am dark. Like, my songs are dark." And <laughs> And I can get up there and I can do this and I will reach people. And they were like, okay, it's your funeral. But I did it. And Robert Smith watched my whole set and uh, came up to me after and was just so, so lovely and kind. And, and I thought, wow, that is like, that's a real sweet guy. And we, we, he told me some really hilarious stories and it was a great experience. And then I was also opening for a lot of people who were breaking in the U S and that was really exciting because here I was just trying to, you know, just trying to learn how to play a great show live. Um, and I'm opening for Dido, for example, who has massive hits. And she's the most down to earth, sweetest woman in the world. And we're watching, we're watching everything happen like super speed mm-hmm. in you. And that was so exciting for me to, to witness and hold and, and just be so proud of my friend, you know? So yeah, I got really close to a lot of people and I also saw in some, yeah, in some cases, just that fame, you know, made people kind of assholes. And I thought, wow, I never, ever want to be like that. So, <laughs> so it was good. I learned a ton. And the Bare Naked Ladies were so kind to me. And we all became really good friends. And uh, I toured, I, we went on their bus with them. So that was always hilarious. And uh, yeah, honestly, I can't say enough about my touring experience in the U.S., um, and the result of that was, uh, you know, I, I did Lilith Fair, and that was the experience of a lifetime. Now, we'll get into Lilith Fair in a little bit, but I'm just curious. Um, you mentioned a lot of bands, like of heavier bands, I mean, or energetic bands, if you will, like Bernicke Ladies or yeah. Old or Garbage. Or, uh, what was the yeah. most uh, receptive crowd to you? What was the most difficult to win over? Um, honestly, the the Cure crowd was great. Like, they were they were so good. Um and Bill, he was playing guitar with me and his, you know, he had this whole pedal system, like the, the work, this work he was doing on guitar was quite gritty and, and cool and industrial. So I didn't, I, I didn't come across like just a, a light folk singer in any way, you know, and that, mm. and that felt really good. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, the receptive audiences, you know, I, I don't remember too many non-receptive audiences, mm, to be sense. honest, like, mm. um, the the ones that were the hardest were the college crowds because they were there at a party yeah and they would yell things at me like show us your tits and i would be like what play you my hits okay (laughs) uh you know it just you know so and singing while people are talking and not really care like not really listening that that's hard but it actually gave me a really thick skin and i'm really glad that i that I got the chance to do that because it's really, it's really humbling <laughs> to get up and play in front of uh, people who could give a shit about <laughs> you and are just waiting for the the main act. So that was really good for me. The thing that I found kind of hard and humiliating was when, um, so I would usually play breakfast television in the morning, like 6am. And then we'd go to re- check in our hotel radio station at noon. And then, you know, a lot of the times if they weren't playing me on the radio, I would have to go play for them in their lunchroom. So the record company huh. would buy them pizza 
And the people from the radio station would come into their lunchroom and I'd be there with my guitar singing to them while they ate. Wow. And they could care less. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> oh, who is this person? I'll never forget. One guy was like, hey, I really like what you're singing, but it's almost Christmas. Would you mind doing some carols? <laughs> it's like, I'm like, what? Seriously? <laughs> Um, so that, you know, that was hard. Uh, but honestly, 99% of people were so great and so, uh, caring. And one of the best experiences I had with that was going into a magazine place called hits magazine. And I was about to do South by Southwest. Um, I had a 15 minute, so three songs, uh, showcase at South by Southwest. And I was on network. I didn't have a deal in the States, except that network was in the U S like network had a U.S. office and was helping me in the U S but they were still looking for a U.S. deal for me. And I went into hits magazine and I sat down on one of the, the desks with my guitar and I played for them over lunch and bought them pizza. And didn't they just put one little sentence in their magazine that changed my life. Huh. And that was biggest buzz at South by Southwest Tara McLean. So that sentence brought every A&R person from the country to that showcase. And as I looked around, every arm was up with the phone open because the A&R people were there, but they had other people listening from the offices. And it was so incredibly exciting. And, uh, and, And the feeding frenzy was for a deal after that was fantastic. So me going in and doing those humiliating lunchtime you know, things uh, actually was the key to, you know, me getting the, you know, attention that, you know, that I guess I needed in order to take the next step. So I'm super grateful for the way that Terry uh, drove us so hard. We worked so hard, but it was just, it was a very, very successful endeavor. And, and, uh, yeah, and so I still get a little annoyed when I'm singing and someone's like eating a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Flashbacks. <laughs> it's like a trigger trauma. <laughs> what was that? Uh, the aftermath of that A and R show. I mean, what was uh, you just getting wind and dine? Like uh, you seeing the movies right after that, or what was the what was the experience like? Yep, that was exactly what happened. It was a blast. <laughs> um, yeah, I was like, hey, what kind of wine do you want from the menu? Oh, I'll take the Margot. Um, it was really really fun. Uh, I loved it, but Terry had his eye on Capitol Records uh, because someone who had worked very closely with Sarah at Arista was, had now moved over and was the president of Capitol in L.A. And so even though there were lots of other offers and opportunities, um, Capitol basically said to me, we're in it for the long haul. Um, you know, we don't see you as just a one-hit situation. We want to make lots of records with you and... I just fell completely in love um, with Roy Lott, who was the president. And he, he was just a real music guy. He really cared. And, um, yeah, and he was willing to do whatever it took to, to sign me. And so, yeah, and so I went with them and moved to Los Angeles. It was great. Now, um, you mentioned Sarah McLaughlin a couple times and her close mm-hmm. relationship with uh, Terry McBride. Um, mm-hmm. Did that – did he try to uh, – set up a meeting with you guys to maybe uh, I don't know, show you the ropes is the right turn of phrase, but to kind of show, to, to give her some of her, her experience when you were so new to the business. What happened because it was just such a small family is in the beginning of my career, Sarah was around. I mean, she was 
we became friends and she did my hair and makeup for my first photo shoot <laughs> and we would go for lunch. I would go to her house, you know, and her band all became friends of mine. And yeah, she, she would always give me, you know, little tips, you know, like don't lose your center when you're out there, like mm. stay centered or, you know, always eat with the crew. Always. Everyone is there supporting you like be it. And her example of kindness and, you know, again, just being so down to earth and so real was everything that I needed to see to recognize that there's no other way to move through this business. And I saw a lot of people around me move differently and nobody wanted to work with them. And I was like, I want to be someone that people want to work with. I want to be someone that gets back, invited back again. I want to be someone that works as hard as I can. And Sarah was a great example for that. And so when they marketed me, um, I mean, yeah, they, they did something similarly because they ha they did have a bit of a formula at network in terms of getting you out there and putting you on the road until you fall over. Um, but, but yeah, we were so different and Terry recognized, I was nowhere near the level Sarah was at um, just in terms of even my own ability to, to play my guitar. Like I was just so, so raw. And so he knew that what I needed was just experience on the road, experience playing gigs, and one way that I developed very, very differently was I became someone who told a lot of stories on stage mm. and talked a lot between my songs. And I did that because a lot of the times the sound was crap or the audience wasn't listening to my song. So I thought, well, why don't I tell some jokes or why don't I tell a story or how can I make my audience listen? And, you know, Sarah, with Sarah, everyone was listening right off the top with me. I had to win them over a little. So mm. I became very, very different. I, yeah, I had a very, very different show than she did for sure. So yeah, they couldn't really market me differently or they, the same. I mean, they had to, they had to do something different with me and I'm really grateful for that too. So what precipitated the move to LA and what did you do when you got there? I mean, why LA and why at that time? Well, capital was in Los Angeles. And my husband, Bill, was crazy about California. Uh, he loved everything about it and wanted to move there. And this was just a great opportunity. I was getting auditions. I was getting called for auditions for films to do acting. Huh. Um, I had a little cameo in a Jerry Bruckheimer film and called Coyote Ugly. Yeah, a little a little movie called Coyote Ugly. A little movie, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and so, you know, just like little things like that were starting to happen. And it was just fun to be in L.A. And I, um, yeah, I just did some auditions. I met some great friends. Uh, some of my best friends to this day still live there. And we got a little apartment in Hollywood nice. and just partied a lot, um, toured a lot, <laughs> and just had the full L.A. experience. It was fantastic. One of the best, yeah, best. I'd say we lived there two and a half years. It was some of the best times of my life. Now, uh Coyote Ugly is one of my mom's favorite movies ever, so I'd re be remiss not to dive deeper into that subject with you. <laughs> uh, how did uh, the cameo happen? And uh, let's talk us through the experience. Okay, well, I was on tour, and I got a call saying that um, that when I landed, I needed to go straight to an audition. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, like how can I do that? I'm just on a plane. I look like crap, and I, you know, there's no way I'll get this. And it was for the part, the Piper Parabo part, the lead. Oh, wow. And I, yeah, but I, so I went in anyway. And the thing about me compared to, well, I mean, obviously, and I'm not really an actress either. Um, but 
I am more of like, uh, I, I have a more real juicy female body. And in LA at the time, the, uh, the way that they, you know, that was just not, they wouldn't cast a lead that, that was a size six. So, um, you know, there, there were even some stores there that didn't sell anything over a size two. Like oh, wow. to me, I was a normal, to me, I was a normal East coast Canadian girl. Um, but in LA, I was definitely not that. So I went in, I got called in to audition. Like I didn't even, I didn't even try to get this part. So when I got there and the casting director looked at me kind of like, Oh, who are you? And I was like, Oh, Hey, you guys called me, man. I'm good. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I ended up pulling out my guitar. They said, Hey, you want to, do you want to sing us a song? And so I did, I sang them a song and they were just, they were just like, huh? Okay. Thanks. And I said, did you want me to read? And they're like, Nope, we're good. And I, I had this awful pit in my stomach. I was like, Wow. They hated me. That was what an awful experience. And so I went home and the next day I got a call and said, they loved you. Um, They want you, they don't want you as the lead, but they want you as a, in a cameo uh, as a singer. And, and I was like, Oh my God, amazing. So I went into the studio. I recorded a song called that's me.
the day before the show, they, they, and this is an interesting story. I don't tell the story very often. So the day before the show, I had to go in and do my wardrobe. And I, I get to the, to the set and there are these two wardrobe ladies and I walk in and they look at me and they're like, who are you? And I was like, oh, my name's Tara McLean and um, I'm in the bar scene or whatever. And, and they were like, okay, well, and they looked at each other and they were like, what are we going to do? And they were like, oh, we don't think we're going to have anything that fits you. Wow. And I was like, excuse me? And, uh, and they, and they started talking about me. Like I wasn't there. Huh. Like I was just the sort of, and it was the weirdest experience. And I just sort of sat down on the floor and I listened to them and they finally, they finally came up with an outfit, um, that would, that would fit me. And I, um, and I was so excited to do the filming the next day. I had to be there at 6am, but I ended up going home and I, I just felt really down. Like huh. I, I was like, I don't like this vibe, you know, in my life every day I am treated with so much respect and you know I had just signed with Capital and things were going really well for me and you know what and I started drinking margaritas with my girlfriend and we kept drinking and drinking and drinking and um and then I next thing I know it's like 3 a.m and I have to be on set at six <laughs> and I and I was like okay I'm going to give these when I get in there I'm going to give them a piece of my mind like nobody treats <laughs> me like that Da, 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 da. And I, so I get to my trailer and I'd forgotten my guitar. Oh, wow. Because I was still, yeah. And, and I was such a professional, like I would never do this. I, I always showed up, but I just, I just felt like this is not my scene. This is not, this is, these are not my people. Like I just, I didn't know what to do. And so someone went and got me a guitar and I ended up getting dressed. My clothes were in my trailer uh, and I walk onto set and the director comes walking up to me and the two wardrobe ladies were right there and the director comes walking up to me and he's like Tara McLean I am so honored to have you on my set oh wow and the wardrobe ladies looked at each other like they just they thought I was an extra <laughs> and and the and the, the director's like I haven't been this excited to work with someone since Madonna and when I directed her in Desperately Seeking Susan no way and <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, what's happening? Like, I didn't have to say anything to these wardrobe ladies. They just went gray. It was so <laughs> awesome. And, and all of a sudden, he's like, by the way, this scene is supposed to be like Arlene's Grocery. And I know you've played Arlene's Grocery a lot in New York. So what would happen? Like, tell me how it goes. And so he was asking for my consultation about the scene. Huh. And the wardrobe ladies were like primping over me and making sure I looked <laughs> great and fawning all over me. And I did the scene and I had the best time. And after my scene, everyone clapped and it was just like, ended up being the best experience ever. Huh. And, but it, what it did was it made me realize like, you know, it, it, who you are and your status matters so much and your weight matters so much, especially as a woman in Hollywood. And and it made me realize, like, I was so glad I did it. I had so much fun in the end because I was treated so beautifully afterwards. Um, but the process of it was kind of challenging. And I thought, this is not where I want to be. I only, I, I'm not going to dive into the Hollywood acting scene. I'm going to stay full force in music. I am going to only play me. I'm only going to play me in the world. I'm not going to play anyone else. And that. <laughs> That was that was when I made that decision. Now, Sarah McLaughlin started a little affair, I guess, 
I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but because of the frustration she felt being a woman in the music industry or the, you know, radio wouldn't play two women back to back on the radio. And that's right. Um, is that something that you experienced within your career? Those kind of similar frustrations being a, a woman solo artist? I did not experience mm-hmm. that because Sarah broke that down be- mm-hmm. right before I got there. And Lilith Fair happened, uh, you know, 1998, um, even before I signed with Capital, I was touring with Lilith Fair. And so all I saw was women everywhere. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks thanks to her, I did not have to have that experience. It was still a boys club, you know, it was still run by men uh, everywhere, every label. uh, And, you know, there is a, a term called your FQ that I overheard someone talking about one day. Uh, and that was, you know, the women in the, in, on the label who had the higher fuckability quotient would get more money mm. put behind them for marketing. Wow. So, you know, I, I definitely did experience some, you know, grossness uh, in the business. But for the most part, I just feel really lucky that I was with Network and, and they are just so in touch with their feminine side. <laughs> you know, even though it was, run, it was run by all guys, um, uh, you know, they, they hired a lot of women, they supported a lot of women, they were feminists, and yeah, I was really lucky that way. So speaking of Love Affair, you also did a number of dates on the tour. Um, can you talk a bit about, you know, how you felt being asked to be part of that group of uh, talented women, and, you know, who were you most excited to meet and, and, and to see on that tour? Well, Love Affair was definitely one of the best experiences of my life and because network was putting it on I w- it was sort of automatic that I was on the tour and I I just felt really um I felt excited to be able to to witness you know th- there were three stages there was the village stage which was for really people just starting out there was the B stage which was for up-and-coming artists and then there was or sorry C stage was village stage um B stage was up-and-coming artists and then a stage was all the big folks. And I, I just couldn't believe what I saw I, I, and what I got to do. Um, for example, uh, I would do a press conference every day and I'd be sitting beside Cheryl Crow or the huh. Indigo Girls or the Dixie Chicks um, and listening to them talk. You know, Stevie Nicks, who was like oh, my wow. favorite, um, uh, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. Huh. And and I would I was allowed to stand side stage at the at the big on the, the big stage and and watch and I because we would all come on at the end and do a closing number so every artist um, from every stage was invited at the end so I got to sing with Missy Elliott oh, wow. um, I, you know like there was just so many incredible experiences and I'd say one of the most touching was um, at Jones Beach in New York I got to sit side stage while. Tracy Chapman performed just her and her guitar and I just cried through the whole thing I she was my favorite and I I was just so so blown away so there was just countless moments of of of, you know I I would say the best part though was the Indigo Girls they would watch everyone's show they didn't just you know hang out in their dressing rooms they would come down and they'd watch the village stage artists they'd watch my show they'd come up to me after and talk with me about my show one of my first at times I had my passenger record. I had a, like a copy of it before it was even made, like just after it had been recorded. And I gave it to Emily from the Indigo girls to, to listen to. And she got back. She was like, Oh my God, it's amazing. I love you. And, and then one day Sarah invited me to come up and sing with the Indigo girls and her. 
on a song. Yeah. And that was to this day, the single greatest musical experience of my entire life in front of about maybe 25,000 people in, in San Diego. And, uh, yeah, it was just absolutely exquisite. I'll never forget it. The sound of that many people, the sweet supportive looks of, you know, Emily and Amy and Sarah and just, yeah, feeling like I didn't think it could get any better. Speaking of that, of that many people, was, were you worried about your music translating to such a a big audience outdoors as well? A lot of times. So not at all. I love singing outside. I used to do little talent shows when I was a kid. So I did have some stage experience and singing outside was my favorite thing. And, and, uh, the sound, the people who were doing the tech on that show, those shows were so, so incredible. They were next level and, and it always sounded incredible and carried out over the crowds. And it was, no, it was a beautiful, in fact, there was, there's nothing like just being you with a guitar. And I would even do an acapella song that way. And Lilith Fair was a listening audience, you know, so different from the college crowds. Um, It was so, it was so beautiful. Uh, It it was so respectful. It was was really terrific. Uh, One more question with the Lilith Fair experience. Um, What was it like offstage? I mean, it seems from the outside, like a really familial experience. Everybody's kind of together for Mm -hmm. one common purpose. You know, you're doing press conferences and (laughs) such things. Are you guys hanging out, you know, having barbecues, playing music together? I mean, what's it like offstage? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of camaraderie for sure. Um, I was the sacrificial lamb to the sponsor, um, <laughs> which was Starbucks. And so I would spend a lot of my day going to different Starbucks in the in the uh, cities uh, and singing. So uh, I had a lot of coffee and Starbucks was really just kind of starting up at the time. Believe it or not, I was alive back then. And um, <laughs> and also Borders Books. So I did a lot of in-stores and also Tower Records. So there used to be record stores, remember? Yeah, <laughs> yes, vaguely. <laughs> I, I would go and I would play at those too. So I didn't get to spend as much time um, with everybody as I wanted to, but it was, um, it was so fun. And we would share dressing rooms um, sometimes with other artists who were like also up and coming. And I would meet the coolest, coolest people. Like one girl was the daughter of Carly Simon and James Taylor. Oh, wow. And you know, it's just interesting. You're like these are such these are such neat people, um, in all kinds of different genres of music. There was a bit of a, you know, an idea that Lilith Fair was just all very soft and folky. But when you have Sinead O'Connor and Missy Elliott and Erica Badu, and you know, it was it wasn't that at all. It was every single genre. It was so diverse. Yeah, it it was an incredible experience. Did you get to meet Sinead? I didn't, but I was sitting in the front row when at the Rose Bowl in Los Angeles when she played uh, Fire of Babylon and I was changed forever first of all just by the by the bass line alone it's a circular bass and it goes through the entire song it doesn't change and it was like vibrating in my body at my cells and I'm pretty sure it changed something inside me permanently like it was it was that performance I'd, I'd never seen a human being so fierce in my life. Huh. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it gave me permission uh, to, to be something that I hadn't been before that, watching that performance. Uh, actually, one, one final question to put the button on Lilith Fair. Um, did you <laughs> get your copy of Rumors autographed by Stevie Nicks? 
no. But, <laughs> um, but I was standing behind her. We were watching The Pretenders. Okay, which is how cool is that? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> behind, right? And I'm standing side stage, and Stevie Nicks is right in front of me. Huh. And I, but she's short, shorter than me. And I, I leaned in because I just wanted to smell her. <laughs> and uh, and she just, I guess she felt me there. And she like turned around and was like <laughs> nose to nose with me all of a sudden. And she was like, "Hi there," and I was like, "Hi, I'm sorry." Um, my name is Tara McLean, and your album, Belladonna, was the first album I ever had. I was nine, and <laughs> I know your voice better than I know mine. I'm just, I'm such a huge fan, and I just want to thank you because, you know, who you are was just so important to me as, as the songwriter I became. And she put her hand, she didn't break eye contact me, with me once, and she put her hand in my hand, and her hands were so soft. I think she uses really expensive hand cream. And <laughs> she just... She just looked at me so profoundly and she said, thank you so much for telling me that. I can't wait to hear you sing someday. And it was just, it was just so powerful. And and being in the presence of a goddess like her um, and seeing her so gracious, uh, it was just, it just, the whole thing was mind blowing. I will never be able to thank Sarah enough for that. Better than autograph. You had a legit moment there, man. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And she smelled really good, FYI. Now, you mentioned uh, Passenger there a little while ago. Uh, going in to record that record, now having, you know, hundreds of shows under your belt and all that experience dealing with press and touring and, auto, you know, crowds. Um, were you, did you feel that much more prepared going into that record, a little bit more in control than you had with Silence? Uh, I definitely did. Um, again, I butted heads with the producer again. Did you? Um, yeah, but only because, he was having a really hard time in his life um, and just had a lot of anger. You know, I chose him out of all the producers that I could work with. I wanted to work with him. His name Malcolm Byrne. And I was a huge, huge Daniel Lanois fan. Everything Daniel did, I loved. And, um, and, uh, and Malcolm had worked a lot with him as well. And I couldn't work with Daniel. And, and yet Malcolm had this place in New Orleans. And I loved the idea of going down to New Orleans and working with like, you know, just that dark magic energy that's down there. And, um, and, and he had made an album uh, by Chris Whitley um, called Living with the Law that I just thought was so sexy. And I, I really wanted to make a record, a sexy record and a deep record. And I thought I could make this with him. And I think maybe some of the, the difficulties that we had together um, helped to deepen it. Um, I had to fight really hard for what I wanted he did call me at the end, you know, after the album was recorded and apologized um, oh, wow. and, you know, for how he had been, but it was, so it was a really hard experience to make the album, but I loved, I loved it. I, I couldn't have done it without Bill there, Bill Bell. He was instrumental and ended up at the end getting a co-production credit on the album because he was so, he was so big. It was such a big part of it. He co-wrote a lot of it as well. And yeah, it was, it, I did feel more prepared vocally. I definitely felt like my songs were, you know, were different. I kind of knew the, the, the direction that I wanted to go. It felt like a bit more of a refined album um, than Silence. Uh, and yeah, it, it was, in, and then, you know, all of a sudden we, we end up in LA and we're mixing it and, and the song, the whole album just came to life. And it was a really, that, then the really exciting stuff happened. Like, 
being on the Conan O'Brien show and, you know, selling big shows in New York and Chicago and Detroit and Boston where I was headlining. And like that, that was, that was such an exciting time, I have to say. So doing Conan O'Brien, what's, what's that experience like? I mean, do you get to meet him and meet the other guests on the oh, show? Yeah. Or? Definitely. Yep. I was there with Roger, what's his name? You know, oh my God, I'm blanking. Um, Ebert. Remember? Roger Ebert. Roger yeah. Ebert there. Yeah. Right. That's him. And yeah, <laughs> my brain. Um, and then <laughs> Bernie Mac. No way. But they were so kind to me. And uh, Conan is just a doll. He is so <laughs> funny. He's so tall. He's very orange. Um, <laughs> and and just the sweetest guy. He he took to, or Bill um, into his office to show him his guitar collection. And he way. made us still right at home. Yeah, it was a great experience. One of Again, one of my faves. I love that I'm sharing all my favorite stuff with you. This is a great chat. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love hearing it. Okay, good. On, on the recording passenger, uh, another question is like, uh, it seems like a lot uh, heavier in ways. I mean, it seems like there's a lot more uh, drum loops, or I don't know what the terminology is, but mm-hmm. it seems uh, a lot fuller than the first record. Was that something that you had in yeah. mind going into it, or was that something that came out during the recording? Yeah, I think it came out during the recording. Um, in some ways, I wish I, I'd made it simpler. I got, mm-hmm. I like the, the, the deep, the depth of it, but there, sometimes it just felt almost too full and overproduced. Um, but you know, there was just so much going on. We had so many incredible musicians. We just kept bringing them in, bringing them in, layering and layering. Um, so yeah, I don't think we did it on purpose. I think it just kind of happened with what was going on there. And, uh, any memories in the writing and recording of If I Fall? Cause that's a, it's a big song to a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I was asked to write the theme song for a TV show that was huge in the 90s called Felicity. And and so I wrote If I Fall to be the theme song for that show. So it was just, it was all possible. My, my music was all over the WB network, which was, you know, those kinds of shows at the time I had, but in the shows, but never a theme. So I was very, very excited for the opportunity. So I thought, I don't usually think, I don't write from the outside in. I write from the inside out, meaning whatever has to come out of me just pours out. I don't go, oh, I'm writing for a specific purpose. Now I need to fill in that, that you know, that situation. I, I need to write a jingle for a commercial or, a, you know, like I'd never done anything like that, thinking from the outside in. So this was my first time doing that, going, okay, what's hooky? What, what, would, what, what would catch people? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, so I, and so I wrote it really quickly just me on my piano um and I demoed it very quickly because at this point Bill had a little recording studio in our house uh he had learned how to use all the all the equipment and we we had that going on and then yeah I pitched it and they it didn't end up getting the theme but they used it in the show and so I was thrilled about that and then when Terry heard it he was like oh finally you wrote a hit (laughs) (laughs) it seems so
People will love this song. It's actually way more poetic than you give it credit for. And uh, and he said, just trust me on this. And so he was right, as usual. <laughs> so uh, I've never sp- spoken with somebody, I don't believe, who's was tasked with writing a theme song for a television show. So I'm curious, um, do they give you like a script or like a, a show Bible saying these are the themes of the show, these are the characters? Do you talk with the creator, yeah. the writers, producers? How does one go into writing a theme song for a television show? Yeah, all that. They just give you, they give you the basic idea. You end up talking to the musical director okay. and, uh, and they just say, hey, we're looking for something upbeat. Or they'll even give you songs that sound kind of like what they're looking for. And I, I find that that is, I, you know, that's really hard for other people making music for TV shows because then they're basically just trying to copy a vibe right um but for me no it was just like something upbeat something inspiring um and so that's why if i thought came out yeah and (laughs) it it was great because her character 
was, you know, a young woman who was just trying to be strong in the world. And that's what I was doing, too. So I, I was able to connect with that character. He was even in, at a show in L.A. one day. It was really funny. <laughs> Carrie Russell ended up coming to a show at the Mint in Los Angeles. Oh, no one way. Night. So, kind of, yeah, kind of a funny full circle moment. Anyway. It's just he was a fan the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was by accident. <laughs> I think she'd been there to see the band before me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned, what was some of the other craziness you said that happened after Passenger released at the end of the decade and the start of the, the, the 2000s? It did. Well, If I Fall was the second most added song at radio in the United States the day, oh, wow. the, the, the week it was released. And that was a massive, um, a massive thing uh, for a Canadian artist to have that happen. And so Conan happened, um, radio stations were playing it uh, like crazy. And, and all of a sudden my shows were selling out and all of a sudden I wasn't the opening act. All of a sudden <laughs> I was, I was the main deal. And I was in LA one night and I was at a friend's house and they were having a songwriting circle. So people would just sit around and sing their own songs. And there was this young guy who was playing and I was just, fixated and obsessed with his voice and his guitar playing and he had never been on tour he'd never really done any shows he was a fresh raw songwriter but there was something special about him and they said to me um or I said hey I'm doing this tour down the west coast of the United States I'd really love to have that kid come with me like he's really good and so they I was able to pick my own opening act and that that guy was Jason Mraz no way yeah. That's amazing. I did not yeah. see that coming. Isn't that great? Yeah. So I got to help, you know, then suddenly foster and, you know, new talent. And, you know, he's now a massive star and I'm just so, so proud of him. And he's such a good man. So, yeah, just like lots of moments like that. And, but honestly, I toured and I toured and I toured. And then I got signed to, um, like after the capital signing, they picked me up in different territories. So in Asia. So the next thing I know, I'm touring first class around Asia and mm. I have a n number three song there and I'm showing up wow. at the airport and there's people screaming and yelling. And I'm like, oh my huh. God, there must be someone famous on the plane. Like <laughs> who's on the plane? And I'm looking around to see who's there. And then they're like, uh, they're here for you. No way. And yeah. And it was just the craziest feeling to see all of these people, you know, screaming for me and following me around and it was it was just really it was really fun but I started to burn out and that was and that's when I needed to get off the road um I needed a break but you know it, it was I feel so lucky that I got to um I got to live in the music business you know in the 90s and early 2000s when it was at its height yeah. you know and I, I never became like that great big giant rock star selling out arenas um, I was always able to keep a certain amount of anonymity, anonymity and also, you know, privacy. Uh, but I got to live at the heights as well. You know, like I really got to to see it um, in full bloom. And it was spectacular. I, I, I consider that to be, you know, I just there's so few people that get that opportunity. And I'm forever, forever grateful for every single person that I met along the way who lifted me up who encouraged me, who fed me, um, yeah, who, you know, every single person that worked with me uh, and believed in me, that was just, it was awesome. It was perfect. And then came babies. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
towards the end of the 90s and the early 2000s is when um, the music industry started to really significantly change, as you mentioned. Um, you know, advent of file sharing, the internet, things like that, the amalgamation, the merging of record labels. Was that something that uh, you noticed as an artist, that it was changing dramatically from the way you had started with your first record in the mid-90s? Yes, entirely. It, it happened almost overnight. Because um, mm-hmm. I'll never forget that radio started dropping singles um that record sales plummeted plummeted people were it was you know even mac i think had a um slogan rip and burn like they were encouraging people to steal music for a while until they realized what they were doing um and they had to stop that slogan um and pirating was everywhere um what was the name of that napster napster was happening um yeah and it and and uh, and it it was like watching kings become beggars. Uh, all of a sudden, all the big record company people, the expense accounts went down. The um, you know the fancy cars were traded in. Like it, everything collapsed, and the music business got flushed down the toilet. Uh, you know, we went from a time where you could only get music from going to a show or buying the album or hearing it on the radio to being able to get any song anytime you wanted, and now truly that is amazing and great but it to this day hasn't figured out how to how to pay and um support the artists it's still we still can't pay our cell phone bills with our streaming revenue yeah it's insane you know it's 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 really really tough there's no compensation so and that's why you know it's it's an extra hard time to be a musician i mean add covid and your touring is is cut off right so right yeah, it's very, very intense. But yeah, watching it happen then in the early 2000s was, was devastating. It was devastating for all of us. All right, we'll start to, to wrap this up soon. But um, in the 2000s, uh, you went on to form a bit of a super group with a few, a couple other Canadian women called Shay with uh, Davna Doyle and Kim Stockwood. Did you uh, have some experiences touring with them in the 90s? How did you guys uh, become friends and in, in getting that group together? Well, I had heard about... Um, uh, Davnet, uh, because we, you know, we're all from the East Coast, right? So I'm from PEI and they're from Newfoundland. And Davnet was an up and coming singer at the same time. And, and she was with EMI. And so was Kim, which is a very different school than network, right? Like they're, it was a very different way of, of um, making records and touring and all that stuff. And Kim, wa- Kim was a friend of my husband. So we were wow. good buddies. And then um, I had just had Sophia. So my, my daughter was born and I did not want to go back on the road in the same way that I had before. I just, I couldn't, there was no way I could keep up the network machine touring schedule and be a mother. So I wanted a bit more of a break and Kim and Dav came to me and said, Hey, we're doing this trio thing. Would you like to be part of it? We're already, we already have a record deal if you want it. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I said, I said, sure, sounds good. It means I'm doing a third of the work. Um, <laughs> you know, we were, we were really carrying each other and, and we just had a ball, you know, we, we started re- uh, recording demos and trying out cover songs. And then we realized we wanted to write it. So we started writing and then my sister was killed in a car accident. Oh, wow. And um, when Shay died, um, you know, we hadn't come up with a band name yet. And those girls really helped me through that. They really... Oh. They became my sisters. And so uh, the band Shay was born. And it was only supposed to be one album, just to just a little project. And it ended up being two and five years of our lives and a really epic sisterhood. 
was amazing. You've also continued continued to make solo records throughout, even up to most recently. You, you released a record, I think, last year called Deeper. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was your, I think, your first kind of solo effort in like about ten years or so. Um, what did it feel like to kind of take all that experience you've now had? Did you feel like uh, you were in charge and this thing was um, the way you wanted it to be? Absolutely, a hundred percent. Well, what had happened was I'd written a show. Um, a theater show about the history of Atlantic Canadian music called Atlantic Blue. And I worked with Pledge and created an album, a cover album that was uh, a soundtrack to the show. And it was, it was such a cool experience because when I was in making that record, I was covering the songs of all of these people that I had grown up listening to. And in some way, just making that album helped me find my way back to my own music. And so I was feeling really inspired to write again, all of a sudden to perform again. And because I had taken such a huge break and I had three little girls, you know, in that time. And so when it came time to make this album, I went in the studio and decided that I was going to produce it. Uh, I, I, I felt that I'd learned enough from the producers that I'd worked with that I definitely could be at the helm. And it was an amazing experience. I had a great co-producer named Dennis Ellsworth, who also co-wrote a lot of the album, and he's, he's brilliant. But the end of the day, every decision was mine. And it was, it was an incredibly empowering experience. And I love the record. It's, it's, I'm really proud of it. And it's you know, independently released. And I sell it at my shows. I sell it on my you know, um, website. And it's, you know, a little bit of money trickles in from it. And I feel like I, at least I still have, have music out there in the world. I'm also slated to record another album in April. No, wow. Yeah. You're the first person I've told about that. What's that? Oh, wow. Breaking news. I'm, I'm honored. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, breaking news. <laughs> speaking of other, uh, not so breaking news, but might be some breaking news to the listeners of the podcast is I was listening to other podcasts that you were on in prefer- in, in uh, preparation for this. And, um, do you have a book deal coming and a, and a screenplay in the works? Yes, I do. Um, I can't say too much about the book deal um, because that will, that will be announced in the new year, but I am currently working on a book and the screenplay is something that I've been working on for a long time. Uh, but I put it aside for the moment to work on the book. Huh. And um, and it's it's about the same thing. It's my memoirs and the story of my life. And the, uh, the album I'm making is a retrospective of all my albums. I'm reimagining eight songs. Huh. And then I have two new songs that I'm going to be putting on it as well. And so it'll basically be a soundtrack to go with the book. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, in revisiting the uh, older material, is that where you're uh, you're kind of seeing the songs, seeing your compromises within some of the songs? Is like, is there anything that uh, you kind of don't like listening to? <laughs> you know, not really. Um, but there are some there are some vocal performances that I feel are a little cringy. Like <laughs> I just I, I listen to them and I think, oh man, I was so not digging deep. Like I was trying to sound pretty. I was not trying to tell the story. I didn't know that that was more important. I was so, because as soon as that record button would get hit, I would, some part of me would clam up a little bit. And people would always say to me, hey, your records are really good, but you're way better live. And I'd say, well, that's because no one's pressing record. 
um, and I, I feel free when I'm live, when I'm singing live. Um, but as soon as I get in the studio, uh, that didn't happen. So my hope is that my album, um, Deeper, is really the first record that um, what you get on stage is what you also got in the studio. Yeah, that first single, uh, Ghosting Me, is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> you out on this question um, i have a companion playlist on apple and spotify of all 90s can rock and i'm asking the guests yeah. to pick uh two singles and one deep cut from uh, mm -hmm. the 90s material release so uh you have silence mm -hmm. and passenger to call from mm -hmm. uh how would you like okay. to be represented on the playlist well i would love for you guys to hear evidence that i spoke about earlier that was my first single um and the other song is Why Don't We Listen to If I Fall, 
if that's nice. okay. And then the deep cut would be a song called Silence, the title track from my first album. Nice. And that performance was in January 1995, and that's my demo. Oh, and wow. it was written the day that Gene McClellan died. Oh, wow. um, I, yeah, I, when I heard he had committed suicide, I, I wrote these lyrics and I went into the, the studio with the, the demo guy, a producer that I was working with, Greg Greeley, and a guitar player. And I asked them to just loop this guitar. And so you'll hear it's just the same guitar over and over and over again. And I just closed my eyes and I just went into the deepest part of me and I sang this. And it was the first time I'd sung it. I'd never sung the melody before. All I had were the words and this guitar loop. And it just came out. And um, and so as you hear it uh, on the album is exactly what happened that day. That was the moment. So I thought that's a pretty raw, uh, deep, vulnerable, um, but also probably one of my best re recorded moments, I think. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing the, the backstory to that. That's uh, interesting to hear for sure. It makes, makes you uh, appreciate the track in a whole different way, knowing where it came from and how it was recorded. It's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, and thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with me, man. It's been fantastic. Uh, my pleasure. I'm on day 10 of a 14-day quarantine on Prince Edward Island, and I'm quite happy and working on my book and so thrilled to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash ravedrool. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself, the tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care. Still